Hello everyone, this is Cody Napier with The Eternal Struggle. Hello everybody, this is Minhajul Hawk, also with The Eternal Struggle. This is episode 6. We go over uh, modern, legacy, vintage metagames and a little bit of finance here and there. Yep, uh, more in this episode than we normally talk about actually because it's kind of a, the biggest segment I think. Uh, it's been a long time since uh, we actually casted, so if you remember our podcast, you should probably go back and listen through episodes uh, one and five. Yep, one through awful. five. Yeah, they're so. they're not they're not that bad. Um, today mm. we are going to talk about a, a few a few things since our last cast. Uh, I believe the last time we cast was before Grand Prix Columbus, before that EMA came out, all that stuff. Um, and since then, a lot of stuff happened both both of us in our personal lives as well as our lives within Magic. Uh, I know Cody uh, took a trip to Japan. Yeah, was there for uh, two weeks. I uh, got to play a little bit of Magic. Um, had some failed uh, fi- Eternal Masters uh, speculation on uh, boxes. 100% wrong. Had no idea that uh, the Japanese love their Eternal formats as much as they do. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not the wisest thing to be going out and speculating on all that stuff. But it should be fair, though. You had, a, you had some pretty bad luck. I mean, it was it was pretty bad luck, but I mean, it just is what it is. Right. And then, right. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, we also talk about. We're also going to talk about uh, GP Columbus overall. I'm not going to go too into too much detail of the experience because I don't want to bore you guys with the more miracle stock because that's pretty much all I did. Um, but the actual Grand Prix was a bit of a wash. Um, but it, it was a good weekend overall. We'll cover a little bit of important parts, and I've actually wrote like a, a formal re- report for it that I'll definitely link in the description below. And then uh, we recently, as of July, had some uh, brand new buyouts as well as uh, some at the end of the month. Yep, we'll we'll talk a little bit about how the finance world has shaken up, especially with this whole reserve list Craig Berry situation. I mean, shake up's a word, I guess. It's just random things just spiking due to artificial buyouts, but I mean that's fine. Right. I mean, it's not it's not real finance. It's a guy manipulating finance the finance market. But we'll talk more about that. Right. Right. For sure. Uh, we'll also give a quick snapshot of what Legacy and Vintage, and I guess also Modern, look like right about now. It's been a few months since our last real cast, and, you know, we might as well talk about it. The format has changed. especially All formats and, uh, have changed a little bit. Legacy's changed a little bit. Not not much, though. I, I think the the crowning decks that we thought were, were good then are still good now. Vintage is evolving drastically. At the yes, moment, though. yes, which we'll definitely address. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about what we would predict will happen with the Banned and Restricted list. Spoiler, I don't think it's going to be much. Yeah, me either. Um, and finally, we'll go into a little bit of Eldritch Moon spoilers. So some of the, the newer cards coming out in the set uh, that was spoiled. Uh, the full release actually came out today. Oh, it did it? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Nothing notable, really. Uh, just some added tools for green and white. Um, and then the last segment is a Cody special. Last time, I, I kind of went on a soliloquy about you know what miracles and, and whatnot is like, and we're going to kind of disregard all that for now. Or, or rather, we're going to kind of go into a bit of his wheelhouse, and we're going to talk a little bit about what what is considered to be the deck ravaging modern within the Columbus area, Green Retron. The deck's okay. So the Tron God. So the Tron God. So the Tron God. Alright, so, Cody, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Let's talk about your, your Japanese trip. So, my wife and I were planning on going to uh, Japan for at least a two-week vacation. Um, we've been wanting to do it for the last couple of years, but uh, with the whole... Eternal Masters release and everything like that. It coincided pretty nicely. Right, may as well just go at the exact same time. Miss Grand Prix Columbus, even though it's in my backyard. But, uh, so far, uh, 
going out. My original speculation idea was to uh, go out to Japan, buy some Japanese Turtle Masters boxes, bring them back to the States for like a profit, maybe open up a few Japanese boxes and get some sweet staples. And none of that worked out any way that I would have hoped it to. Yeah. So... If, if you recall, uh, we kind of talked a little bit about how what you were planning on doing in some of our previous casts. Right. Because it wasn't... It was nowhere near how things worked for uh, Modern Masters. Right. Because for Modern yeah. Masters, you could buy boxes at uh, almost MSRP, then bring them back to the States and at a 40% markup, which wasn't awful. Mm-hmm. But then for Eternal Masters, on the other hand, it's actually the complete opposite. Yeah, no one cares about modern in Japan, but everyone loves Legacy and Vintage Japan. The, modern, so. the, the actual modern format had quite a few players to it in the last couple of nights. And I, I played uh, quite a few uh, games of Magic at uh, Haruya. Um, their modern which, which for those that don't know, is uh, Tamahara Saito's shop. among it, uh, it, Probably the biggest Japanese retailer in the world. It is. Yeah. Um, what is it? It's basically the Star City Games of uh, Japan. Yep, yep. But uh, as far as the actual like store itself, it was by far the best store that I had actually seen while in Tokyo, and I probably went to 11 different stores while I was there. Okay. Um, but as far as like the Eternal Masters hunt, like the day that we had, w- I had woke up to go looking for Eternal Masters boxes in Japanese, um, the first, I went, took a quick 30-minute uh, train ride to Akihabara, and the first eight stores I went to were sold out. <clears throat> sold out at 9 a.m. Yep. It was miserable. Then once I get all the way back up to um, in one of the main shopping districts, it's where uh, Big Ma- Big Magic is. Which uh, Big Magic, I guess, is the other competitor to Haruya. So I guess the Channel Fireball to Haruya's Star City Games. They, it looks like they specialize uh, in like big vintage cards. Okay. Because, I mean, they had nothing but... Uh, they had, like, some regular staples within the cases, and then it was just beta and alpha power, just, like, sitting, oh, wow. like, up in the case with, like, crazy foils. Um, some of the pricing in a lot of stores was, like, really, really, like, high-end, like, American pricing. Okay. Like, in correspondence. So, are, are we talking about, like, graded power pieces? That was, like, like 11 more in over there? Okay, sure. And, like, high-end, uh, what is it? Your standard cards, sometimes you could find cards for, like, less than what they would be in the States. Because okay. I could say, uh, when I was there, it was, like, 107 yen to one American dollar. Okay. So, so that, was, that was the conversion rate? Right. Okay. So, I mean, you could get deals on something, something's not. Um, what was it? Uh, Eternal prices there are nowhere near the same prices that they are in the States. Like, it is, like, a 40 to 50% markup for what stores will sell, like, wow. reserve list cards at. Like, the the standard that I saw for, like, Volcanic Islands while I was there was, um... It was, like, $500, wasn't it? Like no, it was, like, it was, like, 38,000 yen, which is, like, $340 okay, or something sure. like that, yeah. Um, but, uh, as far as that goes, it's whatever... But, I mean, there were a couple other prices. I saw a uh, Library of Alexandria that was at uh, 49,000 yen, which is like $470. Now, after they rose a little bit, it wasn't that bad of a deal. It was like kind of minty. I thought about buying it, but couldn't get myself to pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? All the other stores that I went to to try to pick these Eternal Masters boxes up at were the first place I went to, which is Big Magic, the first place I actually found the head boxes, it was... 36,000 yen a box 
um, which was uh, it's somewhere around like three hundred thirty-three dollars something like that. Yeah. But anyways, um, huge markup. Um, English boxes were three hundred dollars, mm-hmm. like bottom of the barrel. Yep. Like that was the cheapest that you got packs at. Um. So I mean. Well, I was actually there during the first roll. I think Haruya's prices, they had their box prices at 45,000 yen for a Japanese box, which is 400 some odd dollars in yeah. the States. Yeah, 420-ish. Right, and their American boxes were 400 American. <laughs> their English boxes, pardon me. Oh, wow. So, I mean, but like, uh, it's all... A lot of these Eternal staples end up having to be, like, they're imported. But, like, not many people actually go from Japan very often, it seems like, to play mm-hmm. Magic. But, I mean, while I was granted there on vacation and just happened to, like, be there, you know what I mean? Right. But, I mean, I got crazy pricing on a Tundra that I had sold, which the Tundra was near Mint. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like, it was American retail and buy list for a near Mint Tundra to Haruya. Which seems crazy. Wait, what do you mean? So, it was a near Tundra. How much did you sell it for? Uh, it was uh, 20000 20000 20, uh, yeah. So, but that, that seems about average here. You can get Tundras, like, on average, like, an eBay and, like, low, like, TCG and stuff like that for around, like, 150 160 Not so much anymore now, but a couple weeks ago you okay, could. Okay, yeah. Like, back at the time... Like, what is it? Like, you could have easily sold uh, that Tundra for, like, maybe, like, 160 to, like, a player, and then anything yeah. higher than that probably would have been hard. But, I mean, when you're marking cards up that high over there, but then you have this huge legacy in Vintage Crew. Like, I had zero idea what the hell I was walking into. Like, there was no reason that I should have actually taken my modern deck, otherwise than, like, me actually, like, worrying about taking, like, $20,000 in cardboard. Yeah. Like, across, like, the big lake, right? Yep. So, I mean... What so yeah, t- tell us a little bit about like the culture there, and, and as far as magic is concerned, because I've heard it, I've heard that it's way different than it is in the United States. Okay, so in the actual rule book, it actually says that you're supposed to present that you have at least a 60 card deck and a 15 card sideboard. Um, my actual first match sitting down, I was just playing modern. Um, I sit down at the table, I like pick up my deck, I'm like shuffling, 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 whatever. And my opponent's taking their sideboard and then counting it out, and I'm like. Okay, I guess he's just making that 15-card sideboard. And I hand my deck, and he just, like, just presents a sideboard, and I'm just, like, trying to figure out, like, what in the world's going on. And then, uh, one of the other players that spoke English there was just, like, here we present 15-card sideboards to show that we only have a 15-card sideboard and not anything higher, even though it's not competitive REL. I'm just, like, okay. So... It took me, like, a solid, like, three or four games until I actually, like, got into, like, the hang of it. Like, actually just, like, presenting that I actually only had, like, a 15-card sideboard. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's pretty scummy if you're, like, one of those assholes that play with, like, 18-card sideboards just because you can't come up with, like, a card to cut. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. But, I mean, in the States, no one does that. Nope. Not a single human being I've ever seen. Not a single, even competitive REL tournament I've ever went to. As far as I've been concerned, they could have been running 20 cards in their sideboard and I wouldn't have known. Mm-hmm. But uh, even professional REL, like they, they, they just don't, they just don't do it. Right, doesn't like, happen here. Right, but with the Japan meta, on the other hand, they just count 15 cards, show they have the 15 card board, and then they begin shuffling their deck. Hmm. It's completely something that 
I got kind of awestruck by, and I started like using it while I went to Origins when I came back to the States. Yeah. People had no idea what I was doing. And I have a feeling that like I won at least like two games like at Origins because my opponents were just thrown off and had no idea what was going on. Also because like I think I had a total of like eight judge calls because my opponents didn't know what my cards did because they were foil Japanese. <laughs> so I mean I upgraded most of my Tron deck while I was there thanks to Haribuya and they had some really really good uh, Japanese foil pricing. Mm -hmm. um, I got... Uh, Foil Karns at, like, 94 to, like, 95 American. Foil Japanese went in the States, so, like, 200, 180 yeah. for, like, Foil Japanese. Yeah. So, I saved some money there. Um, I opened one of the uh, Eternal Masters boxes I did get and got a total of, like, $80 in value. Yeah. It felt really good. Yeah. I was upset for at least four hours. I believe it. I, I went to a maid cafe and like the entire time I'm just like, I just have to start drinking. Like, <laughs> this is the only way that I actually like feel better about this box. Like the best, I got two Mythics in my box. I only got two Mythics in my box. One was Balance, the other one was uh, Shivan Dragon. The best Mythic in the, in the entire set. Easily. Right, both of them. They yeah, were fantastic. Easily. Um, the only foil rare I got was a uh, foil Japanese sinkhole. Which is fine. I think I ended up selling it for like 45 Okay. Which was okay. It's whatever. Yeah. But uh, some of the other staples I kept, like uh, I kept uh, like a Japanese uh, sewing library, just some other things I needed to keep. Mm -hmm. Was There's no real sense in like buy listing any of it. Cause it's right. It's cheap anyways. Um, especially when like, the whole set's being opened. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the other boxes that I had actually got that I had gotten from a store on pre-order... I ended up just buy listing uh, for what is it, 350 American Haruya. They're paying 350 uh, American at the time for a buy list or something like that. It was something very close to mm -hmm. uh, that for uh, Japanese boxes, mostly just because they could turn it back around for like a 20 percent because they right. were the only store in the area that had them. Yeah, that's pretty good. Right, it wasn't bad. Um, the meta, there were some really weird decks. I saw a lot of Aldrazi in the modern portion. So, like, the Bano Drazi deck? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, which, for Tron's just whatever. You play an O-Stone, and the game's almost... Ho ho you hope that you resolve an O-Stone. Yeah, I hope you resolve an O-Stone, and hope they don't slam, like, a Thought Knot on turn two or turn three. Yep. But, uh, what is it? Overall, like, I didn't... No one was rude through, like, the entire tournament that I watched, because they were also having... I think it was, like, either a uh, PPTQ... Or something like that, like, on the day that I showed up for Modern, so there's already a whole bunch of people there. Mm -hmm. Um... The legacy decks were pretty standard. I saw uh, um, a really pretty bug deck that was completely foil from German Black Border Duels. It was fantastic. <coughs> um, there were a couple Elves players from Aldrazi. There wasn't really anything that like stuck out. Yep. Um, the one modern deck that I did play against, which kind of threw my through, I had no idea what, how to actually play against it for like a solid minute. It was Blister Coil Weird with Paradise Mantle Storm. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> Um, Interesting. Oh yeah, there was a single time where I, I I think he was also playing the card that's like really deep, where it's like if you have twenty cards in your in your graveyard, you draw three for one blue. I have no idea what the card is. Visions of Beyond? Maybe. That must be the card. If, if there's twenty cards in library, in, in yeah, you draw graveyard. three for one blue. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. So uh, what is it? But like by the time I counted, like he had like seventeen damage and. However much mana flow, I was like, yeah, I just die. There's no human way I beat this, and there was no Jeskai ascendancy. It wasn't. Uh, it was just blue red. Blue red. Storm, blue red. Blue red. Yeah. yeah. But uh, 
that was a blast to play against. All the other stuff was pretty cut and dry. Uh, there's a lot more Grixis than there was that I've seen in the states. Like there was a lot of Grixis. Control. From from what I've been told by many people that have been to Japan and other like different areas, the Japanese love their blue decks across any format. Right. Um, I think if like I could choose to do like anything financially before I went there, just buy in the duels and then just take them all over there to like resell. Mm-hmm. Because what is it like if you can get like buyers already set up like while you're there? Like, instead of just, like, buy listening to a store, like, you can increase, like, your profit yields um, by quite a bit. Um, Seems fair. Because it's easier than, like, shipping internationally, you know Right, I mean? which is half the cost of, the, of whatever you're selling already, so... Right. Um, power was just insanely expensive. But, I mean, any store that's actually selling power is actually selling it, like, at a pretty decent certain, markup. Yeah. Which usually... Also, their buy listing is different. What do you mean? There's no haggling. Like, there's no actual, like... Like, you can choose to either sell something after they're done grading it, or there's no, like, well, they're offering $20 on a card, but somewhere else is offering $22 buy list. It's like, we buy this card for this price. That's it. Which is fine. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's very cut and dry. There's no real bargaining for numbers whatsoever. Also, Haruruya's in-store... Uh, way to purchase cards or anything for that matter is the most professional thing that I've seen in my entire life for any magic store. What do you mean? Okay, so, in the actual store itself, they've got vending machines already for card packs, so there's no sense in actually, like, trying to put in an order for, like, card packs unless you're buying boxes. Okay. Um, so That's really cool. Buy, yeah, you can either buy packs by the single, or you can buy them by, like, the three for, like, the 900 yen or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, what's the other thing they do? Um, they have, like, a line of, like, eight computers, right? And then the eight computers have their entire online store. And then you log on to their online store account. And what you do is you go through their entire store. Like, they have, like, random pieces, like, up on display. Like, there were some, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like, the Wyvern back cards, some summer cards that they have on display, and stuff like that. But, like, everything else that's in their inventory is all on their online site, and then once you log on to the account, you order everything that you want, you order it, go to checkout, and then you get a ticket, you get a number. And you have to write your number down, and then it comes up on this big billboard of whose number is ready to be picked up. And then all you have to do is go up to the cash register, they look at look up your number, they grab your order, you pay for your order, and then they hand you your order. That sounds awesome. Like, you, there is no having to go through, like, all these awful-looking cases, right? Yeah. And, like, look at all the cards in the case, because it's just like, oh, yeah, I want to look at these cards. Um, you just pick what you want. They tell you what condition it's in. Also, condition is very different over there than what it is here. Okay. A card is either near mint or played. There's no in-between. Really? Yeah. So, like, uh, what is it? I was trying to sell some uh, Ink Moth Nexuses, and they were offering $20 on the Ink Moth Nexuses that were in good shape. Like EDX to near mint. But uh, over there, it's either uh, it's either played, where it, even the smallest nick makes it played. Okay. They're, the grading over there is very strict, which is fine. Um, which is probably why like I got as high of a price as I did on my Tundra. Um... With the Tundra, I don't remember if I actually sold to Haruya or if it was uh, to another store for two for pretty much it was almost 200 American. Yeah. Um. 
But, uh, I mean, everything over there is just, like, it seems more efficient. Hmm. But you also deal with, like, less people, like, facially. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, it might be just, like, a culture thing. I don't know. Hmm. Like, also, they're bizarre, though. They have this other thing that happens on the weekends where it's called uh, their uh, Haru- Bazaar of Haruya. Okay. Where they randomly have these binders full of just, like, foil, like, uh, foreign cards. Insane prices. Like, I picked up uh, four Japanese promo social colonnades for uh, 2,800 yen a piece, which is, like, 26 American. I picked four up, and I was just like, <laughs> just crazy pricing. I picked up uh, some other Japanese foils. Um, I think I may have overpaid on my foil uh, Japanese Ulamogs because it was like six. It was six thousand yen on one, which is like fifty something American. I give up. I'm trying to do math in my head. My head hurts. And then uh, the other one that I bought was 70,000 yen, which I don't know what they run for on eBay. I honest to God haven't even looked since I've been back because I don't care because they're beautiful. But uh, That's a reasonable reason. Anytime anyone ever asks you what Ulamog does, it's like, I'm so sorry. Even when the judge like brings you the Oracle text, it's going to feel like I'm cheating. Yeah, a little bit. It's, it's a very good magic card. But uh, other than that, like the trip was great. Uh, we went... Um, the actual hotel was, like, right in Red Lake District. It was yeah, right you in mentioned Kabukicho, that. Yeah. Which, uh, that was a lot of fun. It was more fun than what I thought it would be because it's just bars. Nothing but bars around you. But also in the in, uh, Kabukicho and uh, Shinjuku, what is it? There's a lot less people that speak, uh, what is it, English. So there's, like, certain restaurants that will have, like, English menus and stuff like that to accustom the foreigners mm-hmm. that are just, like, tourists, like, tourists, you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, a lot of, uh, unless, like, you're, like, dealing with, like, a business person or something like that, like, not everyone speaks English, which is fine. Um, Makes sense. Yeah, I totally can't, de- like, dog on people that, like, only speak Spanish and, like, just moved to the States anymore. Like, I can't be, like, that belligerent asshole American. Because just, like, now I know what it's like. It's Oh, my bad, God. Dude. But they're, like, super accommodating. Yeah. So, like, they try to, like, work with you to be able to, like, figure out, like, what you're, like, wanting. That's pretty good. Yeah, so it was great, but uh, I saw, uh, didn't have any sushi while I was in Japan, so that's like a straight up sin, <laughs> but like, ch- my wife Chelsea doesn't like sushi, like, whatsoever. Really? Um, yeah, but uh, I ate at uh, quite a few of the uh, really famous ramen places while I was there, Yeah. Um, went to a whole bunch of museums, got a whole bunch of good pictures, um, went to the Samurai Museum, just picked up some like sweet little like trinkets while I was there. Um... The train system took me, like, a solid, like, three hours to try to figure out. Okay. Until I actually started writing it by myself. But, like, it's not too bad uh, once you get, uh, like, your actual stops and everything figured out. Mm. Um, like, traveling at, like, 4 and 5 o'clock all the way up until, like, 7 is misery. Just like the United <coughs> States. That Every, translates well. Like, everyone just shoves each other, yeah. like, into this train. It's, like, impossible to move. So, like... It's always really awkward because you're not, even in the states, you're not cl- close to like used to being up this up close to people unless they're like good friends. Yeah. But, like there, it's just like natural for like everyone just dogpiling on the submarine, but can you know what I mean? So I mean, sure do. What else did we do? Um, 
I actually enjoy, almost enjoyed Kyoto more than I did Tokyo. Okay. Because what is it? The bullet trains there are insanely expensive, but it's kind of like taking like a small short flight in the states. Because mm-hmm. what is it? It's like a two-hour train ride from uh, Tokyo to Kyoto. Okay. But uh, Kyoto itself kind of seemed like more like traditional Japan. Yeah. In a sense, it it has these little like tourist spots. But, like, the shrines and everything else are, like, made for, like, everyone that, like, actually lives there. That's pretty cool. Um, we got totally lost at Inari Shrine, um, which is this huge mountain where you have to go all the way to the top to actually get to the main shrine. Okay. But it has, like, hundreds of shrines that are just spread all over this mountainside. Like, I decided that I was going to just stop, like, taking, like, the thousand-some-odd gates, like, all the way up. And just took, like, this off-backwoods, like, dirt path. So I was like, yeah, because the one path looked like it was going down, but we wanted to go to the top of the mountain. Well, it turns out they just, like, went down and then, like, looped and then just kind of, like, went in, like, this big circle. Instead, we decided to, like, backwards, like, mountain climb up the side of a Nari Shrine. So we're running up, like, basically wood blocks and, like, dirt and stone. They're just, like, there. Yep. Um, running up this time. mountainside. Oh, it was a blast. Um, looking at like all the shrines and all the other stuff while we were there is great. Well, it's good to know that you actually got some culture out of it because a lot of us were suspecting that you were just gonna be there to play magic and nothing else. So. Oh no, Chelsea didn't let me do that. Which good, was great. good. But I mean, most of it was just like I spent so much money on food; it was unreal. Like all I did was eat the entire time I was there. I think that's okay. I think that's uh, that's something that you're allowed to be doing when you're in Japan. Right. I mean, for like vacation too. Right. I wanted to go to like a massage parlor, but like didn't have time. Plus, it's like, $40 for, like, massage. It's probably standard, like, in the States. Yep. It was just, yep, like... about the same here. I've already spent, like, 500-some-odd dollars on, uh... What is it? It was, uh... 500-something dollars for round trip from Tokyo to Kyoto. Mm-hmm. Which I thought it would be cheaper, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But, like, actual, like, train travel is really cheap. Yeah. Like, all around Tokyo is only, like, $3 or something for, like, an hour trip between, uh some of, like, the farther-off distances around uh, from the Shinjuku Station, where we were at. Okay. But uh, overall, it was a great trip. Uh, the magic community in Japan, from what I saw, was great. Mm. Um, didn't think the Eternal community was going to be as big as it was. So the next time I go, I'm definitely going to be taking... Uh, Legacy some, Vintage? Yeah, Legacy and Vintage. Like, Modern was great, but I want to get a taste of what their actual Eternal, for- Eternal formats are like. Yeah, Definitely. Um, but other than that, that was basically Japan magic in a nutshell. Um, got some cheap foils, didn't get any deals on Eternal Masters whatsoever. Yeah, um, that's okay. It's I whatever. Think, I think it's fine. Oh, right. Force of Wills over there are selling, were selling the most stupidly expensive I've ever seen Force of Wills sold in my life. So back when Force of Wills were selling for $70, the EMA ones, right? Mm-hmm. They were selling for $130 and could not keep them in the store. Jeez. That is what Eternal Magic is like in Japan. Jeez. That's it is amazing. nuts. Alright, well, switching gears a little bit, we're going to talk very briefly about, um, well, Eternal Magic. Uh, GP Columbus, I know you didn't ex- get experience much of it, but, um, and, and I also will touch on Grand Prix Prague as well. So GP Columbus, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I, I, I did write a, a formal report on it and I think overall <coughs> that would just be a way more efficient way of spending our time. 
But uh, for my personal experiences, GP Columbus, I did not day two. Unfortunately, I went uh, X and four day one. So five and four. I didn't hear that part. Yeah. Well, no, no. no. I, I rather I, I had four losses total. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't go oh, 0 okay. and 4. I went when you say 4. Oh, when you say that, I'm just like, oh, Jesus, man. No, no, no. It was, it was a lot better than that. Like, Although, <laughs> 12 post the meta. Jesus Christ. Well, my round one opponent was, in fact, playing 12 post. Okay. Uh, he actually recognized me and said, oh, I'm so sorry. Turn one cloud post, go. I still almost won that match. But um, the deck that we prepared for the Grand Prix... Uh, didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, and there were some problems with it, and also I, I think I just played very poorly. I didn't have the stamina really to to play in those bigger events, I, but I'm working on leading up, getting up to that point. You'll get there eventually. Yeah, because I just don't play as much as, as often as I would like to, you know? Like, I don't go out and play Magic. First, like, I don't go out and SG events very often. Right. Um, that kind of thing. But, so, my, my, a lot of my buddies and the people that were staying with me and my teammates made day two, so that was great to see. Uh, Who made day two? I'm sorry? Who made day two? Uh, uh, um, the only person that stayed here that didn't make day two was Alex and myself. Oh, okay. Yeah, both Sean and Will made day two. Who was Will playing? Will was also playing Miracles. All of us were. Oh, fuck that team. Yeah. We're all Miracles friends. <laughs> um, we're all playing very similar lists. Uh, predictable Miracles had a very good showing of Brawl. Um... Uh, the, the the biggest notable thing is there are a total of, I believe, four Miracles pilots in the top eight of Grand Prix Columbus, but I'm double-checking that right now. Uh, one, two, three, four. Yep. So I knew there was a lot of articles that came out after uh, yeah, the, the whole top non-Bantop thing, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, just long story short, Miracles was a great deck to play that weekend. Um, one person... I, I'm sorry, two people from our team made top eight. Okay. Uh, Wilson Hunter and Aaron Kasperzak were both on the team that we, we that our Miracles chat, whatever. Uh, Wilson was playing a 19 land, 4 mentor deck with no Jaces. Okay. Uh, he had a 20 land on the sideboard, and then Aaron had decided to just play a more stock, entreat, terminus, no okay. predicts in his deck. Wilson had 2. Um, but over on the other side of the ocean, Grand Prix Prague, one of our good friends and the person that helped, one of the people that worked with our specific 75 for the event, ended up making this, uh, coming in second, losing in the finals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nicholas Tholance, Twirl, uh, as I as I know him, is is the the most the highest finisher of the deck, and by far did better than all of us, and gave put predictable miracles on the map, which is I think the goal that we had at the end of the day. Um. So that, that was going to be Columbus, pretty much. Um, uh, for day two, basically, uh, my, some of my friends cashed. Um, my, the highlight of that event for me, personally, though, was I top-aided the Super Sunday Series event, playing Wilson Hunter's uh, 19 land 4 mentor deck, which we affectionately call BDM. I'm not going to re- explain what the uh, the acronym is, but you, should pro- you can probably guess pretty easily. Okay. But yeah, that that was that was, it was a great time meeting all these people that I've been networking with for like the longest time, <coughs> and playing predictable miracles and it was it was a really good tournament overall, uh, and great to see the legacy scene booming. I don't I don't think I played against the same deck more than twice. Who was uh, who's the event run by? Uh, Professional Event Services. Which let me go into that real quick. For those that give PES a bad rap, I understand what you're saying. But Grand Prix Columbus was one run beautifully. The only issue that I think anyone really had was the fact that the online pairing system wasn't working for the first like three rounds, 
and it worked for some people but not others. So that caused some bit of hubbub, you know, some technical difficulties, and that's understandable. But o overall, the event went really well. Uh, over just the course of so many rounds, there was like next to turnover. No one had to wait for a very long time. Uh, I guess one other gripe that people had was that the event was not streamed, which is a very legitimate concern. That does seem weird because, like, what was it? I was talking about that with some of the uh, couple people I was in Japan why week why uh, Grand Prix Columbus wasn't getting streamed, but Prague was. Prague is how it's pronounced. Oh, whatever. Prague. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Prague was, did get streamed, but it, but the GP in Columbus did not, which is unfortunate because I would have definitely liked to see the top eight. Like, I would have loved to watch at least the top eight play out because I had vested interest in the people playing in the top eight. Right. Um, just a quick shout-out. Jello Set, he came in second place, which is, I believe, his best finish in a legacy event ever. Uh, I, I, let me let me rephrase. Best finish in a non-Star City Games event, and so, like, the biggest event that he's ever played in right. coming in second is... That's huge for him. Because I know that he's been not the happiest with his Miracles deck for a little while. But it was definitely a great turnover and great to see that someone so well was doing so well with the deck. And but yeah, that was that was pretty much what Game Pre Columbus was as an experience. I'll definitely uh, post the full tournament report that I I, I wrote for the source uh, in the description below this cast, so you guys will definitely be able to check it out if you want to. Okay. Cool. Uh, the next thing that is on our agenda to talk about are the financier aspect of it, um, specifically. I guess the buyouts is a good place to start. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you take the reins here. I mean, buyouts have happened for like a while. It was actually really awkward because when they started, what was it, when was War Origins? Uh, I believe it was the weekend after Grand Prix Columbus. Okay, so the, we the weekend of after Grand Prix Columbus, I was actually talking to a uh, good friend of mine who runs uh, Capital Games. Um, and uh, we were trying to work out a trade, like, over a library or something, I don't even remember. Mm. And uh, one of the vendors had actually walked up to us and asked, do you guys have moats for sale? Um, it's like, well, we have moats. <laughs> when he offered 300 which at the time was retail regardless of condition, yeah. it was like, pardon? At the time, neither of us even thought about it, because he probably got them for, like, 200 buy list. And I got mine for uh, 220. So he's like, fine, whatever. It's a moat. I'll probably never play like a white legacy deck, so I'm not really that worried about it. Mm -hmm. um, but then later in the day, I walk out and then I just check my happen to check my phone because what is it? Um, I was going to go back over to Comic Town to pick up the Italian one that they had sitting in the case for cheap. And I went and looked, and it was gone. I was like, there's something going on. So when I stopped and looked at the actual price on TCG Player, there was only one for $980 listed at moderate play. I was like, oh, fantastic. Yeah. So I started to look around, and it was like, um, everyone on finance was yelling about the, uh, the moat buyout. No one had actually known, like, what happened to moat. Mm -hmm. Like, m buyouts have happened in Magic for a very long time. They are what they are. Usually... They uh, the card will settle a little bit above whatever the card was uh, originally, originally, yep. and then people just go on about their lives. But the problem is with uh, cards that are in so short supply, like anything from Legends, um, anything from Legends, anything from Arabian Nights, anything that's on the reserve list, if the card itself just disappears, 
it's very very hard for to start making relistings for that card. Yeah. Like even like certain stores will just be like, like even Star City Games, like they don't tell you what their full stock of a card is ever. Yeah. Um, just because if like something happens and a card becomes insane and then everyone buys that card, right? They still have a backlist to be able to relist cards at a higher price. Um, like what is it? Moat just went out of nowhere after Eldrazi did really well with the Grand Prix. It, it was Moat first. Um, what else was it? Tabernacle of Pendrel Vale is next. Tabernacle of Pendrel Vale went to like $1,200 from yep. like the 800 price tag that it was at. Yeah. And it's been at there for years. Yep. So I mean, Moat kind of like jumping out of nowhere seemed weird to me because it wasn't really seeing that much play at the time. Right. Besides in lands. It was seeing play in lands. You mean, you mean Tabernacle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tabernacle was seeing some play in like some landstill decks, and even Moat, like Moat was seeing like fringe play in and some uh, miracles, miracles decks. Yeah, and that's it. Um, what is it now? Like all of a sudden now, people are calling it like the new six hundred dollar card. Um, which right now there it looks like there's uh, some copies listed at like five hundred. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, some of the other co- cards that were recently, it looks like they've started to move. Um, was Gaze Cradle. Which uh, randomly jumped to like three hundred dollars for like a couple days. Yeah. Um, what is it? A uh, go back to where you were just at with uh, it. The How gentleman this? that's been doing the buyouts actually came out about why it was he was doing what he was doing. So what's this guy's name? His name is Craig Barry. So Craig Barrett Barry Barry Barry. Okay. Yeah. So Craig Barry. Um. Goes on. There's actually a really well written article about. Uh, it's an interview, basically asking why he's doing what it is, what he's doing yep. when he's buying out cards. Um, which to buy out moats, like the math behind it is that it only took uh, fifteen thousand dollars to basically double the price of moat mm-hmm. um, on TCG Play. So when you buy multiple copies of a card, it's essentially you're playing a stock market game. In a sense that where usually in a stock market, in an open stock market, it's very, very hard to completely buy out all stock on the market. Yeah. Where in Magic, on the other hand, it's very different. It's very easy to do that. Right. Where it's very easy to buy out a stock and then relist the stock at exactly where you want that stock price to start. Um, basically, all the cars that uh, Craig goes after... Um, he was posting before on YouTube videos on cards that he was looking to buy out mm-hmm. because of how they are, and I assume that he chose Mo- chose Moat based on uh, what is it? How well Drazi's been doing recently, and how well Mentor has been recently in Miracles. Um, what is it? There's uh, what else does he go over in the actual list? Well, I, I, I think the biggest thing to note is that he's doing this because he's he's quote unquote essentially accelerating the process. So he thinks that he firmly believes that this was going to happen regardless of whether it was him that pulls the trigger or somebody else. So, with that statement, I believe there is some truth to that, based on. Uh, I mean, buyouts have been the history have been part of the game for a very long time. I mean, well considered. With uh, the most recent release of Eternal Masters, right? Um, people are going to be buying these reserve list cards either way, especially with the rise of Eldrazi. Confirming that yes, it is going to be both a legacy and a vintage all star. Yeah. Um, 
that's where uh, these uh, City of Traders. City of Traders, based on Eldrazi becoming a very good deck, rose $60 in yeah. two days. Yep. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I had a lot, couple people message me asking me about City of Traders, asking if they thought it was a buyout or not. And the answer to City of Traders is I don't think no. I actually think City of Traders is a great speculation of a card for a buyout. I'm not saying it should happen, but Craig actually mentioned it in his article that yeah. it's a card that he's looking to buy out. Yep. But consider, if Eldrazi is that good of a deck in Legacy and Vintage, and City of Traders is a keepsake card in both of those decks, if you take... Uh, if the card grows $60 just based on increased demand, like what is it, Ancient Tomb? Ancient Tomb, before everyone knew that Eldrazi was an insane deck to play in any format, um, was $15 to $20. From the Vault version and the regular version was $15 to $20. Now the card is $40 to $45 on TCG Player, TCG Low. Yeah. And the, the Expedition version, the Expedition version went from $70 to $130. Like that's all that's based on Eldrazi being seen as a legitimate threat to all formats. Yep. Um, what is it? Which is fine, but I mean, going back to the buyout thing here, he, ba he bases it on being able to, yes, he accelerated the process, and he bought these, he just decided to buy these cards out. And then he's able to slowly come off of them um, for a large profit, which makes sense. Yeah. Like, 100%. From a capitalist standpoint, it makes sense. He's actually like, just sitting on them, though, because he thinks that the price of these cards was, is going to go astronomic. Which, he's probably right. Yeah. Like, if you're going to try to find a way to beat Eldrazi, like, Moat is one card that they cannot deal with unless they're running, like, an Ulamog or they're playing the white or green version to try to play World Breaker, which is sometimes going really deep because then you cut yourself off a Wasteland, a Wasteland's a pivotal card in that deck. In, in some cases, yeah. yeah. In most cases. Like, all the other decks, all the Eldrazi decks that did well, and the Legacy portion were all colorless. I did not see a single white version in any of those lists. The white... There are some white versions that still, like, float around doing really well, but the but most, even the colorless versions, uh, they don't run more than two Wastelands. Because they recognize that getting to Eye of Ugin and utilizing Mistress Factories is, like, a key thing. But we're, we're digressing. Right. But, I mean... Uh, the, the point is, like, the, this whole buyout thing, I don't think it's time to, like, you know, be terrified of whatever. What are you... Which... <laughs> what is it? Dude, your dog's adorable. I know. My, my dog's hanging out with us while we're recording. But, uh, what is it? Um, a lot of people are, like, calling him out to be, like, a villain because they say... Because what is the other cut he also did? He also did uh, Lion's Eye Diamonds, Diamonds, which is the biggest which one. Which went from like $120 to like $250. Yeah. Which is whatever. But, uh... What is it? He's saying that he's pushing people out of the game, which... Well, he's not saying that. Uh, well, other people are saying that they're... Right. Put, that they're pushing them financially from being able to play the game. To, to be I mean, fair, the pro like his, his whole point is to sit on wealth let it grow. And eventually he would... <coughs> and, and, and like there, there's two like real goals to this. One is of course for his own monetary personal gain, and the second is for Watsy to see how stupid this system actually is. I mean, the reserve list is what it is. It depends on like a lot of people are trying to say, uh, which we can get to people wanting the abolishment of the reserve list due to another rumor that's been recently going around. But uh, I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. We'll actually. get into that here in a minute. Okay. You know exactly what I'm talking about, and you're a filthy goddamn liar. I I, I don't. What? 
I legitimately don't know what you're talking about. Okay, we'll get to it about uh, what you're saying um, is uh, the gentleman trolling Skelly. Oh, Martin Scrawley. Okay, okay, so... We'll, we'll get into him in a minute. Let's finish about Craig. Let me, let me actually stop you right there for just a second, because I think we should talk about this. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Martin Strakelio, however you pronounce his name, is actually trolling the crap out of people. I mean, trolling or not... No, 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 he, he legitimately is actually trolling. Right. You, no, like, he didn't... He's he's known about magic for years. He has his own collection. He's not buying any other card. He's not buying out Black Lotuses. I would like to see it. I mean, I'd be perfectly fine from the situation. I, I will. I will. I mean, not I will all players would approve. be perfectly okay with him being able to buy this stuff out. I'm, I'm aware of what you're saying. I, I, I now now know what you're talking about. So just to catch people up on like what the fuck we're actually talking about, we're talking about the, this Screlly guy, whatever. The same guy that got put on the news because he had bought the company that was selling this uh, AIDS and HIV medication that like jacked it up like five thousand percent or something like that for the actual pill or tablet, whatever it was that these patients took. Which, while shitty, he did what he did. Um, He's no longer the CEO of the same company. No. Just so you know. But, uh, what is it? He recently came out making uh, posts on uh, Twitter asking if anyone knew anything about Magic the Gathering. So, of course, everyone panics thinking that this guy is going to buy out the reserve list and make Watsy or whoever the hell at Wizards of the Coast abolish the reserve list. It's this whole show of people throwing rumors. Um, honestly, I'd like to see him try to buy Dan Bach out of his collection. I don't even know what that number would be. Um, the, the point is, people are talking about, oh, this is the end of the reserve list. The end is nigh. The end is nigh. When people don't know is that he is very good friends with the magic personality known as Billy the Fridge. I've actually never heard of this human being. Um, he's a more of a he's a he's a YouTuber mostly. Oh, sweet, I found my deck fade number. Awesome. Um, Billy the Fridge and Martin Trickelli have been very good friends, and Martin has his own collection and plays Magic regularly. And Billy the Fridge has confirmed that Martin is in fact not not like buying out Black Lotuses. First of all, it's a really stupid idea to buy out Black Lotuses. Anyone? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? I mean, oh, my back lotuses are now five thousand. Well, they were five thousand dollars. Now they're ten thousand dollars. Whoop de freaking do! Like no one cares. I mean, vintage players do. They already have their power. The, the the point that I'm trying to make is that that he actually did get advice from somebody to start getting into the magic market. We both know what he would buy. I mean, yeah, he would buy up duels immediately. Would it be duels? I mean, it'd probably be duels. It would absolutely be duels. I mean, duels, city of traders, like Craig was talking about. Like I mean, things, just things like that. Targets. Right, but the point is he didn't, and also his buyouts didn't actually his his uh quote unquote buyout of the black lotuses didn't do anything to the prices. I mean, he only bought seven. Doesn't matter. Like there's like a very specific number of black lotuses out there, and I think it's like he a, didn't actually buy seven. You're right, so right. I mean, the, like the, the market dipped for a second because of this whole. Hail Mary cry? Wait, why would it do? Because people thought he was, he was actually buying out Black Lotuses, so they started buying them out anyway. You see uh, what I'm saying? It created a panic button, and Reddit was all over it. I love panic buttons. Like, when people freak out about, like, people buying cards, it just creates, like, the snowball effect. Right, and that's what that's what happened. But it's since settled, and people don't understand, seem to understand that this guy is trolling them. Like, what was it? There was, like, one day where, like, uh, if you don't use, like... 
TCG player collection tracker to like actually pay attention to like what your collection's worth. Um, you should probably start. What do other people use like to check their collection? It's like deck box TCG or something player, like deckbox, that? Yeah. Um, what does deckbox use pr- for its pricing? You can type in whatever. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. I don't like that. I like to have something that like updates itself. No, no, no. I'm I'm talking about you can type in whatever market. Right. And it, it checks that market every day. Um, what was it? When this art when the Craig article came out, the original buyout article, like just randomly, uh, like my uh, collection value just like went up like twelve hundred dollars. And to this point, I still don't know where. Like I know like three hundred dollars of it was like. Uh, um, City of Traders, like, City of Traders, like, jumped, like, 50 to $60, like, yeah. out of nowhere. Um, but that was also not too long after the Grand Prix, too, that they started to trickle up. But they right. didn't jump randomly just $50. Right. Um, Stuff like that, you know, that, that that's just something that happens. But overall, I don't think the buyouts are anything to really be worried about in the long run. Even if you are an internal player, I think things will settle down. Like, LE's already settled down to just, like, $10 above the original price. <coughs> One thing that's kind of interesting, though, is, like, how Eternal Masters actually didn't do anything to a lot of the prices. That's... Okay, so... It did and it didn't. It made Wastelands and Force of Wills affordable for people. Kind of. But, like, those those Force of Wills are actually $100. Because people want the new art as compared to the old art. Even then, the old ones are still cheaper. I mean, yes. Than they, before. That's what I'm referring to. They're, like, marginally cheaper. They're, like, 60 to $70, where they were, like, 80 to 90 before. That's still, like, a percentage, though. That's still a very valid percentage. Right, but the problem is, is that you buy these old copies that can be counterfeited, as compared to the new copies that can't be counterfeited. Which is why, like, I don't actually know, like, why to keep, like, old border stuff unless it's foil. Like, why keep that stuff over the new stuff? Like, it just I like seems the old like, better. I mean, some people uh, I'm like not buying any new cards. Like, what is it? I mean, unfortunately, because I run an Expedition mana base, like, I want to buy NPR Foil Wastelands because I love the old art, be- like, the most. But the problem is, if you have an entire Expedition mana base for all of your decks, and then you go take these all Expedition mana bases, and then you have NPR Wastelands, it looks really bad. <laughs> <laughs> that I can agree with. But I think your problem there are the expeditions, not the Empire Wastelands. Yeah, but I can't get rid of the expeditions. That like, like some a of them are just man. too pretty. <laughs> like, just all full art cards, like, all together. Like, I'm actually building the, the Nahiri Control deck right now in Modern. Just pretty for good. the simple fact that I just want to be able to use my Cryptic Commands again. And your new Colonnades? Oh, yeah, my new Colonnades. I mean, th- there's some little, like, pat-on-the-shoulder things like theirs. Yeah. We're just like, I made just a little bit of money. Wait, do you have the uh, the foil promo foreign Cryptic Commands? No, I have the Texas versions. Okay, sure, sure. Which I've always loved full art cards. But, I mean, uh... All right, well, that's that's basically, like, the whole buyout shtick, you know? It, it, it's happening. Uh, it'll probably still happen for a little while, but I think, overall, the point is that we shouldn't worry too much about it. I want to talk a little bit about EMA uh, buyouts. Like, cards that people need to watch. Oh, sure, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely touch on that so, a little bit. So, actually, on uh, the release of... Within four days of Eternal Masters being released, there's a very interesting thing that happened. In a sense that uh, for- Foil Force of Wills and the States, I was watching very closely. My buy point on Eternal Masters uh, Foil Force of Wills was at $250 a piece. I okay. figured that was probably a fair place to buy them at, since the Judge Foils were around like 350 at the time. Because mm-hmm. everyone was just offing their Judge Foils as fast as humanly possible to try yeah. to pick up these EMA Foils. Um, but... What happened was, 
word had got out from distributors that there was only going to be one single printing, round yeah, of yeah. printing. And then, uh, what is it, you're only going to get like two extra boxes or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, where, what is it? Um, the bottom price I actually think I saw for her, uh, the Eternal Masters, the new Tyrese Nielsen art, foils was like $280, $290 on TCG Player yep. for near mint copies. And then all of a sudden, when this word came out that there was only going to be one printing, it went to immediately to $350. And then after that, it went from $350 to these are now $500. Yep. There was no if and and or between, it was an immediate buyout. So I mean, if you didn't have your ju- your Eternal Master Foil Force of Wills at the time that this thing went off, you probably weren't going to get any. Yeah. Unless, like, some random larger stores opened maybe, like, one at a draft. Yeah, right. Which, I mean, if you opened up cases or boxes, you were opening them up on release weekend, and you probably weren't opening up elsewhere. Everyone else that was actually buying boxes is either storing them for uh, when they actually start to rise in price like the original Modern Masters 1 boxes did. Mm-hmm. Which financially makes sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to actually crack a box and hope for value. Because like me, I opened a box thinking, hey dude, if I open a foil force of will, bam, $1,000 in my pocket for a Japanese foil force of will. 100% wrong. Yeah. I opened up straight hot garbage. But then everyone else I talked to, there's like, yeah dude, open up like a foil mana crypt. Uh, opened up a foil Dak Faden. It's like, yeah, sweet. God bless you. Yeah, uh, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, not being salty about it, but just like, yeah, I opened up the worst humanly imaginable box I've ever seen. The second most expensive card in my box was the Sylvan Library, slowly followed by the Chain Lightning. I was like, this box is actual just cancer. But I mean, that's neither, neither here nor there. I'm still salty about it, but yep, I've gotten yep. over it. Alright, good enough. Good enough. Like, we need to watch for certain cards to also be bought out and go back to their original pricing. Because the second wave, eventually they came out with, like, a very small printed second wave. Yeah, we don't have the actual numbers in front of us, but it was it was smaller than the first distribution, but not not by too much. Right, so there's still boxes sitting out there. Like, Comic Town still has boxes. I think Card Academy still has boxes. And local stores around here in general, yeah. Right. Um, still has boxes within uh, Columbus, and you can get most of those boxes at MSRP. Um, mostly just because from prices dropping. Yep. Like, random foils that I think people need to watch out for is going to be like, uh, Caracas is about where it was before the printing on the foil copies yeah. as compared to the Judge foil copies, which is fine. But uh, Dak Faden is one that I think people are going to need to watch very carefully, especially since Shops is kind of coming back again. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vintage, anyways. Um, because what is it? That thing went from being a four hundred dollar foil to one hundred twenty dollars. If right now, like I just picked up two copies of Dak Faden at like one hundred twenty dollars a copy. It's very good. Um, and right, it shouldn't last. No, it probably won't. Especially if Dak Faden, like if Blue decks figure out a way, um, and Vintage to fight the Eldrazi decks, which we'll 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 talk about. We'll talk about yeah, that, that happening show at the moment. But I mean. I think deck fa- foil deck things are a good spec target. Like the foil force of wills, like if you wanted them, like you're still going to have to pay near five hundred dollars to get a copy. Yeah. To get a co- like a single copy, like two thousand dollars for a playset. Like thank God, like I actually got like 
fairly lucky and found a judge that was um, willing to come off of his judge foils at a really good price. So now all copies of my actual vintage and legacy deck are foiled that can be foiled. Um, so I saved myself a couple hundred dollars by going that way on the Judge Force of Wills. Because now Judge Force of Wills are starting to tick back up. Because some people prefer the Judge um, foil art compared to uh, the Judge, the, the, uh, original the EMA ones, yeah. art. Which I mean, I still kind of like the EMA art, but the foiling um, and the colors and everything on the Judge foils is very, very pretty. Yeah. But I mean, they're, still, they're almost $400 now again on the Judge foils, where they were... They were getting dangerously under three hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, I think those will settle down back down to where they used to be. Overall. Right. So I mean, some cards are gonna have to be watched. Uh, some, what is it? Toxic Deluge. That's another card that's gonna have to be watched very closely because that's the only foil printing. That card got bought out when it was forty dollars and went up to one hundred fifty dollars for like a solid like four days. Not um, surprised. What? Um, Pyroblast. The new, the new Pyroblast and the Hydroblast combination are really cool together. Check out TCG Player. Check and see how uh, what those are at anymore. Because I want to know what those foils are. Because I picked up a couple copies for $35 a piece. Because I figured if any other car got bought out, that it saw its first foil printing. So they're still around there. Yeah. If any other car got bought out for its like first foil printing, and that was all that we were going to see, which those pyroblasts, if you haven't bought the foils yet, they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely just beautiful. The foiling on this set is great. Like, it's not like the awful like Modern Masters foiling we got. Like, the foiling is actually fantastic. Yep. Um, but, I mean, yeah, just watch for, like, cards that have, like, seen their first foil printings with this set. Um, if you want the foils, it's probably best to pick them up now rather than later. Because you can't guarantee that once Eternal Masters that, yeah. 2 comes around that they will see a printing. Right. Good advice. Good advice for sure. Uh, Alright, so switching gears for just a brief moment. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what Legacy of Vintage is going to look like right now. Because Eternal Weekend... I, I know it's a little far off, it's in October, but it's, it, yeah, it's like in Columbus again. Four months almost? Yeah. And there's something a random sector uh, announcement before both before that event. <coughs> yeah, but I think overall it's it's kind of interesting to see what both legacy and vintage look at, look at right now. Like legacy is uh, pretty much about the same as it was before. Nothing's uh, really changed. Uh, the the one big thing though is uh, a lot of people are moving away from playing Eldrazi, as far as like a statistical metagame concern is is because people are trying to realize that Eldrazi isn't actually as good as people thought it was. It's still very good. Uh, I'm I'm aware of that, but here's the point. Uh, uh, Brandon Varnduin, another one of our teammates, actually, uh, posted an article about his experiences at GP Columbus. He came in 27th, I believe, uh, and did pretty well. But the, the the point was, if Odrazi is a deck that's supposed to beat Miracles, and that's supposed to be one of its best matchups, why the heck did I never lose to it? Aaron Kasperzak, same thing, never lost to Odrazi. Myself, never lost to Odrazi. Throughout the entire weekend. Crushed it every time. Unless it's just people like just pick up the deck because they assume it's the best deck in the format, which was never true. Which was never true. The, the 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 thing is, people are preparing now for Odrazi. People have been preparing for months leading up to the Grand Prix uh, series. We're seeing a lot more Blood Moon now. Right. Not just Blood Moon, but m- moving into a like kind of a direction that maximizes the card Monastery Mentor and Miracles decks makes it so that it's very hard for you to beat that card. Like, regardless of l- low land count, that kind of thing, like, El- Eldrazi is good still, and it's still very playable, 
But even like when it's losing to like things like Grusis Delver regularly, even with Child Spore in your deck, and losing to Miracles regularly with for the same reason, people are starting to move away from the deck. I've talked to several of the champion Eldrazi players in Magic Online, and at least two of the three of them are now playing Miracles. Because you, they can't beat the deck anymore. Yeah, I'm okay for banning top. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah. we're, we'll go over. It's just not gonna happen. These Pokemon Go servers need to get their shit together. I'm getting so upset. <laughs> like if I check this thing one more time, like I had that five-hour window yesterday. That was great. I mean, by the way, like sponsorship. Totally not received by Pokemon for this cast. No. But if no, you're not no. playing Pokemon Go, you need to get like outside and like actually like get some sun on your skin. It's it's a good time. It is Definitely. the most insane experience. As soon as we can battle other people and trade, the game is going to explode even more than it already has. Like if yeah. we could just like quit flooding the servers and shutting them down, like it probably wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> I think it's a lot bigger than they actually assumed it would be in the States. Oh, absolutely. It's way bigger. We've already eclipsed Japan in, in players. So, like, um, my biggest thing is just really hoping that they don't, like, slam on the players that uh, downloaded the uh, Australian copy or the uh, the other copy. The New Zealand copy? It doesn't matter. Okay, anyway. It's well, really important because I can't lose my team because my team is getting huge. Like, I'm already level 11 on my trainer. And I am stacked. Alright, anyway, let's let's kind of bring the focus back a little bit. So, that Legacy hasn't changed much. Odrazi has uh, seen less play than it used to. Uh, the big three, I think, still exist. So, Miracles, Storm, and Stelber. Is Storm really a deck? Storm just won Grand Prix Prague. Did it? Yes. Oh, I wasn't paying attention to their listing. I mean, but then again, you have to think, like... Not only Storm, but the best Storm pilot in the world. All those Europeans, though, they're all about that storm shit. Eldrazi was the most played deck in that event. Was it? Yes. Aww. Yes. How does Storm beat that? It's not that hard. That's what you're failing to understand. They just throw if chalices you... and, like, all these other... Yeah, echoing through the chalice kill you. It's not hard. Trust me. Ugh. I think you are very much overestimating the power, the power of Eldrazi. I mean, maybe. And I mean, maybe I'm just looking at it from, like, the vintage standpoint and how busted... And every time I played is. against you, I beat you and when you play Eldrazi, so... I mean, yeah, but, like... Eh. That, no, that, that phenomena is occurring everywhere. I played two leagues yesterday, beat Eldrazi three times in each. Like, three out of five were Eldrazi players, and I beat them both. I, I beat all of them. Very, very easily, might I have. I mean, I'm just happy I have my Grissus Delver back. Grissus Delver is, is seeing a lot of play on Magic Online as well. Because Days being reprinted in EMA brought the price from 20 tickets to like 5, making it way easier to afford that deck. What about the foil tickets? Doesn't I mean, matter. What about the foil Dazes? It doesn't matter. It matters! They're cheaper than the regular ones in Magic Online. All foil cards are cheaper than the regular ones in Magic Online. So you can build a foil foil legacy deck online? Yes. For okay. cheaper than a regular one. I mean, I'd hope. A- anyway, <laughs> um, so let, let's... We, we talked about like, legacy for a little while. What about vintage? That is the biggest shakeup that I think we've we, we've noticed. I, I suppose. Okay, so from the original weekend, which what was it? I think it was like sixty percent or something like that. Of some of the major tournaments, as of the uh, the Lodestone Golem banning, was gush decks. Yeah. Gush mentor decks. Like yep. the format was just overrun. Yep. 
with all of these. But he's very greedy, mana base based. Right, shops yeah. almost completely disappeared off the format. Um, but the couple, a couple weeks, couple months after the banning of Lodestone Golem, things have started to change again. Um, all hail old, our new Eldrazi Overlord, I mean, not Seer. The, the, the deck still dies to dredge. The, the white the, the, version doesn't. Right. Okay, so let's let, let's talk about it a little bit. Okay, so Eldrazi is now seeing play in Vintage as well, which I I believe I called out on cast, actually, a couple casts ago, that that was going to happen. The deck is very strong, but you have to realize that there's two very different versions yes. of this Eldrazi deck. There's the Shops Eldrazi, which is basically playing the exact same kind of like uh, game that the original was. Shopsticks also played, but also has like uh, Thought Not Sears and Thought Not Sears and Reality Smashers. They're usually the only version, the only actual cards like that that they play. Right. And then there's the new white version, which is the version I'm also working on foiling, which is great yep. because the deck is insane. It's like it's, it, 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 the white splash is essentially for Thalia, Eldrazi Displacer, and Containment Priest main deck. Right. Which no idea how the fuck Oath beats that. No idea. I've played it on Cockatrice multiple times, and every time I feel like I am the world's worst player in the world. Like, you're just like, Oath, Containment Priest. Like, I did not bring in my Lightning Bolts to this deck. Yep. Or wrecked. my Sudden Shocks. Yeah, it feels really bad. Get wrecked. Um, the, the, the point is, like, we're seeing a lot of a lot of emergent Eldrazi strategies in, in Vintage now. And it's actually pushing out these Gush, the gush decks. decks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. the big thing. Because they're playing pri- they're playing a prison strategy the same way that the Shops did. Shops did, but with a much more aggressive strategy. Yes. Um like what is it? Uh, other creature decks are unable to beat the Eldrazi decks, the white Eldrazi decks because of these displacers. But then these new shop decks are able to just crush these white well, Eldrazi decks because they don't have as many. They're not prepared to deal with the big creatures. Right, but also you have to realize that they're also playing uh, like these huge, like absolutely gargantuan hangerback walkers that they can put in the play. Yep. And Triskelion, it feels really bad to blink a Triskelion. Yep. Like turning a Triskelion, like to be like. I'm going to have to blink it to put it sideways. Like, I'm going to ping you three times, and then, yeah, I'll allow it to flip. That's fine. But, I mean, what is it? The Gush decks, like, what is it? Um, I'll actually plug in, because on the plane ride back, thank God for the So Many Insane Plays podcast, because those guys broke down the meta on, like, the three most uh, recent... uh, major vintage tournaments and the actual like win percentage numbers like they went through all the math on it um Eldrazi and Shops has a 72% winned um win percentage against uh these Gush decks yep but Eldrazi uh Eldrazi Shops has a phenomenally awful matchup against Dredge that's why Dredge has started to really push itself back up because these Gush decks... Were already pretty bad against Dredge anyway. Right. Can't really fight against Dredge too well and neither can the Shops decks. But then now we have this new White Eldrazi deck which be. has a very good match percentage against uh, Dredge because of the Containment Priest. Because it runs... Thalia. Um, Thalia. Yeah. All these other cards in the sideboard. It's running... Uh, what was it? The one version I saw that really was running Stony Silence in the main, which seems crazy. Yeah. But I mean, it's also running like all these other prison effects, and it's also just running like dudes, dudes on dudes on dudes on yep. dudes, just beat face, which is basically it's like all kind of like the death and taxes of vintage almost. It's it's based around the same idea, yeah. Right. 
but I mean, uh, the Gush decks have dropped in a considerable percentage. I think someone said that, like, the Gush decks, even though they took Gush Mentor decks took, like, four spots in the most recent top eight, mm-hmm. um, it was only, like, 32 or 20-something percent of the meta. And then uh, the Gush, not the Gush, the, uh, the Shop Eldrazi decks came together for, like, 26% of the meta. Yep. But, like, the other problem is... Like, the blue decks that were prevalent in Vintage before are doing awful. Yep. Like, if you're not playing Gush, like, what is it? Oath of Druids, like, is my child. Um, only has, I think, like a 50% win percentage against the meta right now. Which is really bad. Um, Shops, which used to be a phenomenal matchup. Is no longer um, the case at all. It's... It's still okay, um, but, like, there's not that many shops matchups, like, out there now. Like, they're usually, like, they're the Eldrazi matchup, which seems okay. Mm. I mean, other than that, it's just whatever. But I, uh, some of them, what was it? The one white Eldrazi list was super savage, running, uh... What, the list that I'm actually like working on building was the uh, the four wasteland with the one strip mine and the one crucible worlds in the main mm-hmm. version, where there was another version that was running four wasteland, three ghost quarter, one strip mine. Yeah, and then the one strip mine. I'm just like, Christ forbid you drop any sort of a relic in play because anyone that's not running any more than like five basics is just dead. Yeah, but I mean, they're just super hateful on the mana bases. Um, some of the blue decks just can't keep up with it. Like, Grixis Thieves has almost disappeared off, like, the meta list. Yep. Um, just because it's just, like, blue Storm decks, is, like, nowhere. Yeah, Storm is not very high on the list anywhere right now. I think it was, like, 4% of, like, the meta they said at PES or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it doesn't have a very good matchup against any of these Eldrazi decks <coughs> or the uh, Shops decks. Um... Storm doesn't historically have a very good matchup against the uh, the Gush decks, just because they just have like this infinite like card advantage engine with Gush, and then they already play like two to four Fluster Storms anyways, so it's really hard to go off on them. Possibly, I, and historically I think actually it's been the opposite. Storm has always had a good blue deck matchup because they can never keep up with the amount of discard spells you have. Well, also like they have moving pieces parts, whereas you have a one linear strategy. Right. So blue decks are on a decline. The colorless decks are kind of back up again. Um, people were calling for Gush after the Gush restriction. After yeah, the, after uh, Lodestone Golem happened. The restriction of Lodestone Golem. But now it's really... Um, somebody else in plays brought up a really good point. Of it's probably too early to restrict Gush based on... Uh, like we have an emergent metagame happening now. right now. Right. The entire vintage metagame right now is changing, and it's changing drastically very quickly, because multiple decks are trying to figure out how to fight the old decks. Right. Like, some of the actual uh, o- other Oath players that I've been talking to that have been playing Oath for a very long time are moving to playing... Uh, Blazing Archon. <coughs> Blazing Archon, which is huge, because it gets there in the air, <coughs> completely stops... The Eldrazian shop decks from just like getting in on the ground. Yep. And the card's like so large that you can't get, like you can't necessarily swing into it. Um, well, no, you can't. 
Right, because it says you can't attack target player. Correct. And then, uh, what's the other thing? Magus the Moat has seen a big increase in play, um, mostly just because it stops all these uh, mentor tokens and mentors from coming in, stops all the Eldrazi from coming in. It doesn't stop... One reason why some of them are really moving to the Blazing Archon path, though, instead of the Magus of the Moat, is because it's Triskelion. Yeah. Because Triskelion can just ping off the Magus of the Moat. Yep. With Blazing Archon, it takes a lot more to get through. Right. But then, what is it? Uh, the Blazing Archon also stops the uh, Shop Shops decks, which aren't the Eldrazi versions, from just uh, making Infinite Thopter tokens and killing you. Yep. Same thing happens. Uh, which is like a, a really good way to segue into what we believe is like a good BNR discussion. Um, I know kind of... We, we've, we've talked about this a little bit earlier, but... Basically, what does what do you think is going to happen in uh, Legacy, if anything at all? I know what you want to happen. What do you think will actually happen? Nothing. Yep. I mean, I don't really see... I'd have to look at the Legacy ban list to actually see like what they could actually bring off it. Mind Twist is like very easy to unban, in my opinion. Eh. It's like a no-fun card. I honestly don't think I want that card off there. It, it's just... It's worse than him. I Almost know. every... Sometimes. Yeah, uh, can be. Unless you have four mana, it's worse than him. I mean, if you're playing Storm, it can be, like, this absolutely just crippling card if they just don't be able to force it in game one. Sure, but that's, like, Turnabout. You know, that's, like, the same kind of concept. Right, but I mean... And that already exists in the format. Like, you have access to an effect of that if you wanted it. I have no idea. Like, probably... I don't think they change anything for Vintage at this point because it's rapidly changing... Yeah. Also, we don't have pros like screaming at the top of their lungs on Twitter that this card needs to be hit with a wiffle ball bat. Yep. Yep. So Speaking overall, like, <laughs> um, overall, no, no changes. I think is a is a good way to say it in both formats, right? Yeah, I don't think anything happens in modern either. Yeah. Because what right. is it like? The modern metagame is like completely wide open. Like even though like the in Columbus, like a lot, we have a lot of people complaining of like a Tron metagame, but like. Also, we have multiple members of the Columbus crew which will only play Collected Company and Jund. So I don't know what you want. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit. Okay, okay. so just uh, let's wait for a little bit for that one. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, I guess our penultimate discussion is a little bit about spoilers. Were there any... Uh, El Eldritch Moon is coming out in, I think, a little over a week, or maybe at the end of this week, I believe, pre-release, actually. Um, is there anything in particular you want to talk about? I know the kind of the big story spoiler is Emrakul is behind what's happening in Innistrad. Um, I couldn't really care less about the story. <laughs> I've already <laughs> seen like how Emrakul gets in prison. I think it's bullshit. Um, sure. What is it? Honestly, I think like they should have just had like Emrakul eat the plane and then like everyone because I couldn't like Innistrad's really cool lore wise, but it's just like one plane that I could just like really care less whether or not I get ate or not. Um, but it seems like really weird to like all of a sudden I mean in the actual set they have the help of Tamio and Liliana to put away Emrakul to the moon spoilers mm. by the way yeah but, sorry uh, I mean Emrakul gets locked in the moon but Emrakul's not killed which kind of sets it up that Emrakul can come back yeah being sealed away in the moon I don't know I don't but know anyways there's like I didn't really see, like, a whole lot of eternal playable cards in the actual set. Uh, there's uh, the one Eldrazi Wish card, which 
could actually see some interesting play in Omni Show. Um, Possibly, but it's like um, it, it's a it's a um, Eldarmi's call that you can actually cast, but you can't like cunning wish for. Right. So that's an important an important distinction to make. I don't think it's gonna see that much play, if if at all. I think uh, some people were com- saying that it could see some play in Blue White Tron. But blue white's already like this non-existent like thing. In it's the a, it's animals. already very clunky, and it's a three mana card that doesn't do anything. Like I, I don't think it's that. It's called it's called Coke's from the Blind Eternities. <coughs> I don't think it's gonna be very good, honestly. Um, right. Um, There's a lot of talk of people saying whether or not Emrakul was actually good or not. I still think that the card itself is like pretty iffy. But there, are, like the more and more I thought about it. There are some matchups in Modern where that card's insane. Like, Legacy, I actually think it's unplayable. Agreed. You're, you're always going to just play Aeon's Torn instead, because Sneak and Show will never want to show and tell this card in, because it's an on-cast trigger. Correct. Like, Emrakul and all the other Eldrazi before they actually, like, cared about, like, their combat ability, which was the Annihilator, and was, like, what just wins you games. Yep. Um, show and tell, Sneak and Show won't play it. I don't, honest to God, I don't think 12 Post will play it. Nothing because will play it, it honestly. It seems really in, in like so far. And Modern though and Tron, like what is it? There's been like some iffy studies that I've read that say in some games where Ulamog gets two cards, Emrakul will sometimes get three to four. And be cast at like nine to ten, which is about the same as Ulamog coming Because out. what is it? The new Emrakul has uh, basically somewhat of the Tarmogoyf mechanic, where its casting cost is reduced based on the card types that you have in your graveyard. Yeah. Um, but what is it? Its other casting trigger is that whenever it enters play, you take your opponent's next turn, so you kind of mind slaver them. But the other big downside to that is that they get another turn after. Like, a lot of people just assumed it was, like, a Mind Slaver effect that you could cast for, like, 8 or 9, depending on how many cards that you had in your graveyard. But this... The other part where it's just, like, your opponent takes another turn is the part that worries me. Because sometimes you just will take your opponent's turn and you won't have an answer to everything that they have that's on their board. Or sometimes when you just crash down, like, an Emmer... Like, an Ulamog or something, you just answer everything that you need to. Um... One thing that I do like about Emrakul the Promised End is that uh, in modern, Emrakul the Promised End can be very, very good against uh, decks like Storm, which already aren't really that prevalent in the format already. Burn. Um, burn. Um, Assuming which, you can reduce the casting cost to a reasonable amount. I mean, realistically, you're going to be casting this card if you're playing Tron, which is the deck that's going to be playing it. You're going to be playing it uh, on usually, like... 10, you're usually going to see it at 10, because what is it, it's going to be like Artifact, um, Artifact, Sorcery, um, Artifact, Sorcery, and Occasionally Creature, sometimes Land if your opponent's playing Ghost Quarter, yeah, um, so the card itself seems okay, it's going to be casting for about the same thing that like, Ulamog will be, it's, it's not like insane though, I think it's, I think it has its place as a sideboard card, but I don't necessarily think it's main boardable over like a card like Ugin. Yeah. But uh, it does have protection from instants instead of colored spells, which I would have much rather seen just like colored spells, like period. Well, right, and so would everybody else. I mean, everyone that wants to play this card would have much rather seen like a little bit more of a similarity. 
the card still dies to sorcery removal, which decks like Jund are starting to play more of. Like, like Dreadbore. Yeah, they're starting to play more Dreadbores. Um, which, I mean, if you take your opponent's turn and then you get rid of all of them, what's really bad is when, like, if you take your opponent's turn and they just don't have a target. Yeah, it'd be um, a, a little awkward times. But overall, like, the, the cards are fine. Uh, there's this new mechanic called Emerge, which is pretty cool. Um, but nothing, like, nothing nothing too ridiculous, nothing too out of the ordinary. It's just, it's a pretty cool looking set overall. Some, some of the cards are pretty broken. Like it, it, I, it, in within the standard, the concept of uh, the sphere of standard, I should say, like news constrictors, like a strictly strictly better version of uh, that one dredge enabler, discard a card, gets plus one plus one, and also has reach, uh, things like that. There are a couple of other spoilers that were kind of interesting to see. Um, they reprinted, functionally reprinted, donate. It's called it's a it's color shifted into red. It's called harmless offering. It's tuna red. Target opponent gets control of target permanent you control. The art on that is fantastic. It's, it's, a, it's a little cat. It's adorable. Uh, there's a new Thalia, which is like probably the only... One, one of two eternal playable cards, I think. It's two and a white Thalia her heretic, um, heretic Cathar. Legend creature, human soldier. First strike. Creatures and non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped. It's a 3-2. So it's pretty powerful. It's, it comes down on three mana, so it's kind of difficult for it to to make kind of an an impact as far as the the, the falter effect is concerned. But yeah, so like uh, Thalia, the new, the new is just kind of it's a very interesting and very powerful card, and it, it kind of remains to be seen where it's gonna end up. I, I can't really evaluate it. Very I actually easily. think she's going to see quite a bit of play um, in modern and legacy. Uh, Possibly, she may yeah. actually see play in uh, vintage as well. The card, I think, the card is actually a lot stronger than what some people are giving her. Like, um, because something I'd like to point out is that you can't fetch. You can't fetch with her. Correct. Um, which is awful. Um, you can't fetch. You can't wasteland your opponent because all the lands just come into play taps as soon as they come in. If it was just creatures, the card would be like subpar. But it's a three-two first strike for three. That brings everything that your opponent cares about into play tapped. The argument, though, <laughs> against it is the fact that it does cost three mana, and that usually gives them enough time to stabilize their mana base. Usually, again, if they're playing very greedily, it doesn't. But if, like, you consider like a deck like a card like uh, a deck like Death and Taxes, like right? No, 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 that's like Brimaz, like fairly easily. That, that, well, not Brimaz, but Brimaz is not playable at deck right now. But I, like I, that's what it would slide into if we were to pick BC playing Legacy. I think it's more defensible to play it in the modern version of Death and Taxes because that deck has active like strip mine effects, like Ghost Quarters and stuff like that. Right. And I, I, I like it's prevalent in Legacy as well, but I think the land destruction is more important to have in modern. I want to see a lot more of her. Like the card is just like it's backbreaking for uh, like big mana decks, like ramp decks, like uh, the Titan Shift decks. Oh god, that's gotta feel really bad. Like you breach in an Emrakul and feel really bad. Yeah. It's it, it, we'll see. We'll see oh, how it goes. Oh, I want to talk about Chaos Reveller. Yes, let's, let's let's this is the next one I want to discuss. This I don't know. This is a goddamn nightmare. I don't know how effective it actually is. I think it's going to be insane in Modern Burn. So Chaos Reveller, that, that's probably that's where we, it's going to end up sliding in. I think most most likely, Chaos Reveller is six red red creature Devil Horror. To Devil Horror, which is important for the people that want to play Thing in the Ice, for the record. 
Um, it costs one mana less to cast for each instant sorcery in your graveyard. It also has prowess, and when it enters the battlefield, you discard your hand and draw three cards. Yeah, it's cards insane. So the card is actually really, really good. It's also three four. Like it's base three four. So it doesn't die to bolt. It usually casts. Uh, it costs three or four mana to cast. I actually think this card is going to be more of something that's uh, played in modern burn as like a refuel target, but also becomes a body that's a three four. Right, right, no, absolutely. Like in, in almost every scenario where you cast this card, it's a free draw three. It's similar to Treasure Cruise in that regard because it's not you're not. You're not going to be casting this when you have other cards in your hand you want to cast. This thing could also be, like, a uh, really weird, like, reanimator card. Like, if there's some sort of, like, reanimation spell on standard, I have no idea. But, like, the ability to discard your hand and draw three? It could be. I don't know. I, I don't think there is any, like, effective reanimator card in standard. Ne Necromantic Summons, I think, is the closest one. Even even that's, like, not very good. Um, but that's that's pretty much the... There's one more spoiler I want to talk about, if I can find it. Um, where are you? Spell Queller. Spell Queller is the last card that I think would be eternal playable. It's one blue-white creature spirit, flash, flying. When Spell Queller enters the battlefield, exile target spell with converted mana cost four or less. When Spellcore leaves the battlefield, the Exile card's owner may then cast the card without paying its mana cost. It's a 2-3. It seems okay. It seems really good. It can stop Force of Will, which is important to know. But, like, I, I, I want to test this card in Miracles, even. Like, that's a really cool effect. I feel like it's almost the exact same uh, type of thing. Well, no, it's not quite. As, uh, I was thinking, trying to think of, like, a Tide Hollow Skeller. The Tide Hollow Skeller exiles it and moves it to the hand, where when this thing dies, you the other thing it. is it has three in the butt. It's a th it's three... It, it, it has flash. I get that. Skeller does not. Half the time I like this card more than Vendillion Click. I, I would have liked it if it was legendary. Why? Because then you could blink it back. You could blink it back to your hand with the triggers on the stack. With Crocus and make yeah, it yeah, no. and just be like, yeah, just counter your. No, I, I don't. I don't need any of that stuff. I think it's very efficient at what it does. Oh I think yeah, it's very just powerful. like just nut on them. Be like the same way as like uh, all those exile trigger abilities that they play with. I would play that. I would. I would actually. No, I would. I still wouldn't no, come to miracles even no, if that card was playable. But uh, it's just a cool card to note. I think it's a powerful effect. I it does remind me a lot of Tide Hollow Skeller. It just—it seems really weird to me that this. I think it would have been really neat if the spell just went to their hand instead of just being cast whenever it died. Like Venser? Yeah. No. Yeah, <laughs> three mana Venser. That'd be fair. I would play that. Three mana, like the card already exists, and there's spells that do that anyway. But that's basically the, the extent <laughs> of the spores that we want to talk about. Nothing really eternal playable as far uh, outside of those three cards. Um, the last thing is uh, another thing that's going to be in Cody's wheelhouse, so to speak, and that is Tron. So uh, the Columbus community as a whole has kind of said that they don't like Tron. Tron is a cancer! That's pretty much an, uh, a relatable quote, but <gasps> he, like, uh, a lot of people play the same decks all the time, and 
that's kind of you know that's, that's by virtue of having a smaller meta game and like a local meta game in general. I mean, the and other apparently, thing is like a lot of people are, a lot of people are also consider saying that like events are not as large right now as what they have been, and they're correct. And I don't know if actual like people, some people have only been playing this game for like two to three years, like or maybe just like just started. They don't actually like know exactly how the seasons work for Magic. Like, summer has always been historically awful for Magic. Yeah. Because, like, what is it? People, do given other the chance, stuff. will do other things on the weekend than go to a Magic tournament. Where, like, when you stop and think about it, the Legacy tournament for Grand Prix Columbus had how many people? 2,000-something, maybe? Just under 2,000 people, I believe, yeah. Just under 2,000 people. Jersey... Had 4,000 people in it. When it's cold, awful, and no one wants to do anything outside. Yep. And then people are complaining that we have, like, we go from 40-something, like, person events on, like, Mondays and Fridays that fire down to, like, 20 or 16. It's like, I don't know what you're actually, like, wanting to be upset about. It's followed this trend for the past, like, 10 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, I mean, I digress. Back to Tron. Tron, yeah. So basically, give us give us an overview real quick of what Tron does, uh, wh- why it's good, why it's bad, and what you can what can you do to stop it? What are effective strategies against it? So Tron has changed. Like I, I've gone over this before. Tron has changed a little bit from when we used to have Ivogan. Before Tron uh, was t- t- talk to me about the premise of Tron first, as if I'm five years old and don't know what Tron is. Okay. Tron is a deck that puts three lands into play with different name and plays the best three drop in Magic, which is our God and Savior, Karn Liberated. <laughs> so, essentially, you have a four of three different lands in your deck, which is Urza's Tower, Urza's Mine, Urza's Power Plant. Um, all of them are almost worthless by themselves. They all just make one colorless mana by themselves until you have one of each other name in play. And then all of them but the tower make two, and the tower makes three. So... Essentially, what you want to do is you want to create... You want to keep a hand that allows you to get 7 mana on turn 3 and then cast any big idiot in your hand, which you play Karn Liberated, Worm Coil Engine, World Breaker in some instances. Um, and sometimes, if you really want to get crazy, you set, try to get yourself set up for a turn for Ulamog, which against most decks is just backbreaking. It's always yeah. really fun to play it. But... Uh, what is it? Um, essentially, I've heard people say that Tron is a uninteractive deck. And I disagree to a point. Because a lot of people say with Tron, like, Tron does this thing where it's the exact same game plan every single time. Mm-hmm. Which I can say is true and not true in two different aspects. Because... Uh, in modern, you have like these two different fields. You have your uninter- uninteractive decks, which try to interact as less with your opponent as possible. You want to goldfish as much as possible and not be like bothered, yeah. which is decks like Storm, Ad Nauseam, Infect, decks like that. They're pretty much the combo decks. Splinter Twin so was probably l- the l- first. Not necessarily combo decks, but like more traditional like aggro decks, is what you would call those. Right. Where like Tron, the big three for modern are those three decks. Right. Where Tron, on the other hand, I consider to be a uh, non-blue control deck. 
Okay. In a sense that uh, you are playing board wipes that keeps your opponent's creatures off the board, and then you're playing a specific wing con that you try to win run with till the end. Um, there's multiple different versions of Tron. There's the blue-eyed version, which, because of how the formats changed with it being so aggressive, um, has kind of fallen out of favor. And then there's and that, and also it's a matchup against the green-red version is horrendous. Fact. Almost unwinnable. Yeah, because you always hit seven before they do. Yep. Like, they try to remand a card, and you're like, that's fine. I hope you sincerely have more for the next couple turns. Because, like... The white-blue version plays the Gifts Given package, right. which is usually like Elish Norn, Iona with the Burial Rites, which is fine. But I mean, that deck's, I think, just like, it's it's very Tier 2. Mm -hmm. um, some people would call Tron like 1.5. Okay. So that in, in, in that it beats Tier 2 deck. Tier, tier 2 and other 1.5 decks decently well, but loses to Tier 1 strategies most of the time. Not always, because, like, Jund is, like, the direct definition of a Tier 1 deck. In a sense Some Tier 1 decks, I should say. Like, those big three decks that we talked about earlier. Right. Burn, Infect, and Infinity are very bad matchups for Tron. Affinity is a lot better than what it used to be. Correct. What is it? Um, the new bluer versions that uh, aim to get all their creatures out of the way of, like, Pyroclasm, um, the all deal stuff, Fire yeah. Spout, um... That version's a little bit different. The one that plays Master of Ethereum. Yeah. That deck is scary for Tron. Yeah. Because as soon as they get out of reach, if you don't have an Oblivion Stone, you're basically dead. Mm -hmm. Um. What is it? Um. The deck essentially sometimes you'll just have the straight nut where you just open up with a turn three corn and there's just no way they beat you. Yep. Um. Some decks will like burn. Burn's a horrendous matchup. In fact, is a horrendous matchup. Um. I, th I think the the biggest complaint against Tron, and I'm going to take the the part of Devil Devil's Advocate over here against Tron, is that it is a linear kind of deck, in that it it, it has that whole drop, put three lands down, make a play seven drop or whatever. That might just be a virtue. Of, the, the reason that deck is so good though is because there aren't good counter spells in modern. That's one. That's one reason. And the second being that the mid-range strategy is just full... They, they can't compete with that. No, because you always go bigger than them. And that's one reason why people say that the deck is very uninteractive. Is because, what is it? You go so big that it's almost like you're not even playing on the same playing field as they are. Correct. Which... I played Birds of Paradise turn one. I'll play Creature Picks on turn three. Or, or whatever. Like that. That's like... Magic modern should be this whole like pacing <coughs> turns out and doing all these things and you're just like not playing the same game at all. Right. Well, one thing that's like different with Tron compared to like some other decks, like Infect will usually always eventually get there. Yeah. Where Tron, on the other hand, sometimes like if unless you have some, some you, you have some percentage of clunky draws, you will lose to your the deck will sometimes just kill you. Yes. Like there will just be games where you will. You have like twenty four CMC in your hand, you're dying. Right. Or you'll have, like, uh, two Tron lands in hand. You'll have... Uh, One of the same on the board already, and you yeah. like, don't draw a way to get the Yeah, you'll card. cast, like, three uh, three of the uh, Ancient Stirrings. You'll dig, like, 20 cards down and then never see the other piece or any uh, any expedition map or any way to tutor. Right. The, the, there, it is a clunky as there is a clunky aspect to the deck, more so than most other decks, because you're playing a low land count deck. Right. It's always almost always 20 lands. Right. 
And, like, that does cause some problems, but people... Like, when Tron does fire all cylinders, it fires, like, across the planet. It's very, of, like, it's very hard to beat. Yeah. Which, again, by virtue of just the way modern is as a format, it's just, that's where it's mapped out right now. So that's that's basically what Tron is. Um, and people in Columbus especially just are complaining about it because a lot of people in Columbus, like, enjoy casting Birds of Paradise. Well... Or enjoy casting Inquisition of Kozilek and things like that. I mean... I guess that's just, like, their play style, which is fine. But, I mean, I play pretty much everything. But Tron, I think, has always been my main mainstay for, like, what I've always wanted to play. Like, it was always different, like, back in the day, because now you have to play, instead of, like, this control deck from what it used to be with Ayavugan. Yeah. Because you used to be able to just play four O-Stone, four Pyroclasm, any other board wipe that you ever wanted to play... And then you would play, like, Emrakul, a couple Karns, and, like, maybe one other threat. Okay. And that was it. That was all you had to play, because yeah. that was all you needed. But now you have to play this heavy threat version, which you're just playing big, dumb, colorless idiots that are just b- way bigger than your opponents. Anything your opponents do. Yeah. Um, me, personally, I've always I've been on the Kha'Zix return plan ever since that card came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's probably because I've been melded by our meta, and I've kind of built the deck around our meta. Yeah. Like, if you play nothing but, like, green-black, like, mid-range strategies, if you put Kha'Zix Return in the graveyard, eventually that thing's going to come back to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, where some of the uh, the newer versions are now playing Lightning Bolt instead. Right. Because it deals with the uh, the Zoo decks that are playing Nakatl. And the Affinity decks and the Infect decks, things like that. Right. Um, and it's only one mana. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the newer versions, which are playing Fire Spout, which there have been multiple times where I've been caught where my opponent has things that have a toughness of three. I'm just like, I'm probably dead. There's just no way that I can just get my feet like and the like dug into the ground before they just run you over. Right. Um, which is a valid concern. Right. I mean, you can't really hit anything in Tron. The only reason why Tron. Uh, had any cards banned out of it was because it got caught in the crossfire of Eldrazi Winter. Correct. And there was just no way to avoid it. I mean, the only other way was to get rid of Temple, but then, like, Eldrazi... We wouldn't have the banth Eldrazi that we have now. Correct. Um, which is still which, a very viable strategy. So. Right. Banth Eldrazi is a very strong strategy. Um, I've also heard uh, people talking about Rug. Okay. Um, what is it? It doesn't play the Displacer, but it plays a much more aggressive version with the Objugators. Mm-hmm. It's very scary. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a cool concept. But what is it? Uh, the deck, I think, seems fair because it does lose to itself. Like, there will be many, many times... There will be times where, yes, you hit three Tron lands on turn three, and it just feels like there's no way you can lose. Sure. But there's also certain decks where you can just slam a turn three Karn and it doesn't feel good enough. Like, Infect. Yeah. Turn three Karn against Infect is awful. Yep. Where you're just like, I'm probably dead. Um, so let's 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 uh kind of move things along a little bit, and talk about how how you can you beat Tron, and you can't say just play Infect. No, um, so there's multiple ways that you beat Tron. Um, one way is hating on the mana base. So the cards um, like Fulminator Mage, Molten Rain, Ghost Quarter, things like that. Fulminator Rain, Molten Rain is almost too slow because it's cast on three. Um. If you're on the play, it's not awful. Right. But on the draw, it's not great. Unless you're playing, like, this dedicated, like, Birds of Paradise, kill your opponent's lands, and play, like, this green-red stompy deck. Which, 
one had done well around Columbus like for fairly long time, but then it just like lost to certain decks like Enfact Affinity decks that just don't yeah. care. But uh, what is it? Um, you always attack the mana base on it. Um, Surgical Extraction once again is a great card. Because <laughs> um, what is it like? We have all these other Tron decks in Columbus, and when I play like Tron versus Tron, I don't lose. Because Surgical Extraction is the card that you want to have in the matchup. Like, Crumble to Dust is, like, okay. But, like, it's always, like, really bad when... So, uh, Surgical also requires you to kind of contort other choices, though. So you have to play, like, multiple Ghost Quarters. I don't. I run one. I run one Ghost Quarter and one Ghost Quarter. Because, what is it? Because you can always tutor for that one Ghost Quarter, hit one thing, and then Surgical out the rest. The other thing is if you're the Tron deck that's playing, trying to play Crumble and the Mirror Match... You have to hit four lands. Yeah, you and one of them has to be like a grove or something. Right, you, have to you either have to hit to four it. lands, or you have to hit Tron with an active chromatic in order to cast it on turn three. Yeah. And that's your best case scenario. Where, what is it? If you're running the Surgical Extraction with the one Ghost Quarter package for the Mirror Match Granite, my deck is completely like somewhat warped to fight the Columbus metagame of like four Tron decks at your random FNM. Yeah. Um, which at that point, usually you don't lose. After that first surgical goes off, you're just like, I'm playing fair magic, you're not. I mean, you're, you're playing you're fair magic, playing I'm, fair magic not. I'm not. Yeah. So anyways, um... I'm not gonna, we're, I'm not gonna, like, kind of pick apart your deck building here, because I don't think that's the right way to do it. That, that's, I don't think that's the right way to attack that specific scenario, but overall, so what you're saying is, just attack the mana base. Also, discard. Okay. <coughs> so... You have, you have few payoff cards. So... Some t- what's really funny is that if you are an experienced player against Tron, you do a very different thing than what the inexperienced person does. Okay. An inexperienced Tron player will always go after the big things that kill them. Instead of going right. after the development. Going after the development, correct. Yeah. Like, if a person that has Discord is on the draw, and they notice that you have Chromatic... Two Tron lands, Sylvan, Karn. They will... An inexperienced player will Take just say, Karn. well, he's going to get it anyways, and then just pick the Karn, and then hope that you don't draw into another threat. But the problem is, is that these Neutron decks play uh, very threat-heavy counts. Yeah, so like four Karns, two Ulamogs... Four Karns, like two Ulamogs... Two to three Wormclaw Engines, um, Spell Skites, something like that. Right, and then uh, like the Ugins and all that other yeah. stuff. World Breakers... Um, but if you attack their ability to actually tutor for their lands, they can just tutor dead for the whole rest of the game. And it always feels really bad. Like, it always also feels really bad, like, when your opponent just, like, luck sacks into the third Tron land and just kills you. Yeah. But that's what Tron does. Yeah. I mean, that's why Urza made the Holy Trinity of the Tower, the Power Plant, and the Mine, and gave us his only begotten son, Karn Liberated. And it's just, it's honestly just the whitest white deck that's ever been made. <laughs> But I mean, it is straight up purity incarnate. If you say so. Colorless is true purity. If you say so. That's also a very Phyrexian statement. It it absolutely is. Um, Uh, On that note, um, I think it's a good time to bring this cast to a close. Right. Do you have any uh, any closing remarks? I mean, (sighs) Tron is very strong against like any blue deck. Yep. Besides Delver. Delver sometimes can just get underneath of it. Yep. And there's just no way it beats it. Um, green black X decks, green black X decks are a joke, regardless. 
You better have um, Fulminator Mage and Colgan's Command later on, otherwise you are dead. Colgan's Command doesn't have get that good. Like you have, you, you have to have either the Fulminator's Mage or the Ghost Quitters. No, I, you have to have them in conjunction of one that are supposed to be right and heavy discard. Yeah. Um, but I mean, also, no. Let's back up here. Let's go to the uh, the new uh, possible hymn, the new modern hymn. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a new hymn. We can't forget that card. Jo- if John doesn't play that, I will be honest to Christ surprised. That card is sick. I don't think it's actually as good as you think it is. I think it's still really good. Really because good. I, I think an important point to make for it is it has, that... It's the Lyrium, right? That turns it into... Correct. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Oh, these are new spoilers. Which I almost had Nahiri built, by the way. And I got to play against Nick with the uh, the game one, Nahiri versus Tron, and it's not even close. No, it's, it's really... It's not. just like, you're playing this really fair blue deck, and I'm playing this really not fair blue deck. Yeah. I have the best cantrip in modern, so... Ancient strings. Yeah. Um, but what is it? I'm building the Nahiri deck right now, except I need four foil Nahiris, and the deck's done. So, oh, besides uh, four foil uh, Ancient strings. Wait, what was that? Judge foils? I'm not looking at those. You get to them later. No, I need, I need spoilers of these new Judge foils. You've already seen them. Have I? Yeah, I'm positive. <coughs> what are they? I don't remember. You'll call up later. I'm looking them up right now. What is it? And I'm also checking my Pokemon Go. Where is this him card? Like, you and I have both seen it. It's like... Yeah, I know it exists. black, colorless, discard one card. Your opponent discards one card at random. And it's like Delirium and and Hemitoron. And two, yeah. The, I don't think the card is, like, honestly that good, because I think once Delirium comes into play, it's going to not matter as much that they discarded an additional card at random. But, I, I mean, I'm absolutely liable to be wrong. I've been very wrong about spoilers in the past. Speaking of finance, when is Front of All Lore supposed to come out? Sometime this summer. That's all I know about it. I have no idea what they put in that set. No idea. Does. We still have to wait for a new conspiracy to come out, too. I mean, I, I can't really care less about conspiracy. Whispers of Emrakul. Here we go. Whispers of Emrakul. There we are. Yeah, it was exactly what I was talking about. Delirium, discard yeah, two. This card is okay. One, otherwise, I think it's very strong. I think the fact that it discards a card at random is like pretty important to note, but I, I, I think paying two for a discard <coughs> one card with possible upside isn't necessarily the best thing in the world. But uh, like I said, I'm, I'm very willing to be wrong. Um... I just, I don't, I'm not very good at evaluating spoilers. That's one of my many weaknesses as a magic player. I'm just very good at miracling people, and that's pretty much it. But yeah, um, that's been a, a pretty long cast. I know we've been kind of... It's been a while since our last one. It's been a very long time. So, a lot of content. Yeah, so I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I know that we in, enjoy spilling out, spewing our thoughts for you guys to kind of devour. So, Any other clo- clo- closing remarks, Cody? No, I'm out. Okay, well... Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. This will be on MTG Cast, uh, just like our last one was. And have an awesome rest of your day. Yeah, you guys have a good one. Bye.